Um, a bit about myself, and then we can really dive in. Uh, so as I said, I started coming here almost 20 years ago. I began meditating in 1974. Uh, I was a, in my last quarter at UCLA and had 12 units I could fill any way I wanted to. So for some reason, I think of it as grace in some sense, probably. I just got interested in Eastern religion and philosophy. Next thing I knew, I was out in the on the fields with my long hair and gold glasses and my flute, sitting very zen, very self-important. I thought I was really groovy. Could drop the fact that I was a meditator at parties and seem cool. But, so that's where I began, kind of off and on since then, and a fair amount of off. But the last 20 years, especially the last uh, 15 or so, a lot of on. So that's my background. And along the way, uh, and I trained in different traditions, not just in Buddhism and uh, became a psychologist, uh, also raised a family. Our kids are 20 and 23 at this point, and been through some thick and thin there as well. And in the last 10 years, I've always been very interested in the brain. You know, what's happening in the three pounds of tofu, right, between the ears? Because it seemed to me that the final common pathways, I'll talk about, of all the causes and conditions that stream through us, helping us feel happy or suffer, helping us feel peaceful or angry, helping us feel loving or mean or distancing, dismissing toward other people, it flows through the brain. So, as I'll talk about in a bit, if we could get more of a handle ourselves on influencing the causes and conditions of suffering and its end as they move through the brain and manifest in the brain, it would give us tremendous influence over our own happiness, our own well-being, and our own functioning, and how we treat other people, and the degree to which we can help make this world a better place. So that has been a real inspiration for me, and I've gotten interested in, in effect, the intersection of three circles. Psychology, I have a background as a psychologist, a therapist, brain science, and contemplative practice, especially Buddhism. So it's what's at the center of those three circles that's really interested me a lot the last number of years. Uh, out of that, I wrote a book, Buddha's Brain, you may know about, and um, it's been part of a teaching stream for me for a number of years. Uh, throughout that time, I've been very involved here. I was on the board at Spirit Rock for about nine years and still per involved in other ways. And um, I've had a, the great opportunity to, of course, do retreats here. It's a wonderful setting for retreats, as well as come to daylongs and even teach some daylongs. Uh, so that's my own background here. Uh, tonight, I do hope to talk about uh, coming home, returning home, coming home, being home in our own deep nature, and in particular in the deep good news that is actually embedded in the brain. And in that context, I want to start with the Buddha's own fundamental inquiry 2,500 or so years ago in which he began teaching as what he said was one thing, suffering and its end. Now, of course, the end of suffering is not merely a blank, because if that were all there were to it, as he famously said, uh, a Buddha, I mean, a baby would be enlightened. Now, maybe a baby is enlightened, but imagine a toddler bonking her kid brother on the head, you know, for some red truck or something like that. That's not really what we would think of as enlightened. All right. Enlightenment is more than just a blank, it's a presence uh, of, as he put it, the highest happiness, which is peace. So the question then becomes, of course, how to do it. 
And that's where he focused on causes. Buddhism is a deeply causal teaching. It's focused on causes and effects. It's very close to uh, the great question from Dr. Phil these days. So, how's that working for you? Right? Causes and results for better and for worse. So, how do we attain this wonderful, deep, abiding, unconditional happiness that has so many positive qualities in it? Of, for example, the four, they're called Brahma Viharas, the four uh, divine abodes, the resting places of awakened consciousness, which are also in everyone's heart. They're simply perfected as we move along the path. In other words, how do we promote the causes and conditions of compassion or kindness or equanimity or joy, joy at the good fortune of others in particular? You know, how do we cultivate uh, factors of awakening like tranquility or rapture or happiness? Uh, how do we actually do that? And that was the focus of the Buddha, a focus on causes. What causes suffering and what causes deep happiness? Now, this focus on causes is wonderfully hopeful because it's about what we can do. The Buddha, in many, he was a profound pragmatist. He said two things are important, what's true and what's useful. And the second one is more important than the first one. Many people would come with him to argue and debate what's true. Is this true? Is that true? And he'd engage that a bit. He was very, very clear. It's interesting that Carl Jung, the great uh, psychiatrist and therapist, um, thought that the Buddha was probably the smartest person who ever lived. And Carl Jung himself, you know, had some game. Uh, It's really funny. Our son went on a teen retreat up at Abayagiri, speaking of Abayagiri, and he came back and along as a teenager, he ended up actually literally in the ER, the emergency room of the local community hospital because a girl on the retreat had sprained her ankle. And so one of the abbots there, I think Ajahn Pasano, Ajahn is an honorific, it's a title, so Ajahn Pasano went with uh, Forrest in this uh, young woman to the ER in Ukiah, a very prosaic setting, and Ajahn Pasano with his head shaved and orange robes and the whole deal there in the waiting room. And so I asked Forrest what he thought of the whole retreat, and he told me a few details, and then he paused. And he's a guy who, you know, is a major ESPN watcher. And he said, you know, Dad, those Ajahns have game. (laughs) Kind of cool. Kind of cool. Anyway, so the good news is that if we focus on causes, we can do something. We can make things better. You know, we can produce results. And that is a very hopeful thing and can give us some optimism that we can actually make things better. Okay, so where are these causes located? You can locate the causes of happiness or suffering in different levels or domains. For example, one place to locate them is out there in the world. Causes of suffering and deep happiness exist in the economy, the healthcare system, uh, barking dogs next door, uh, culture, patriarchy, oppression, late-stage capitalism, etc. You can locate the causes out there. And we can intervene out there. That's very important. That's very legitimate to intervene out there. We can also like, locate causes in biology, kind of in a macro sense. You know, in the basic biology of the organism, uh, we can think about needs for food or shelter or nutrition. We can locate causes out there. And we can locate causes in the mind. Causes such as greed, or hatred, or delusion, the three traditional poisons in Buddhism that lead to suffering. 
or to add one more that I think, as I'll talk about a bit later, is also very important. It's somewhat implicit in the other ones, but I think it really lives in its own right. And it's an interesting question why the Buddha, in many ways, did not say much about it. But that's the poison of heartache. You know, that's the factor that leads to suffering of heartache that's very embedded in our profoundly social nature as the most social, the most loving, uh, the most focused on relationships, the most needing of relationships and fed by relationships, animal on the whole planet. So I'll talk tonight a bit about greed, hatred, heartache, and delusion. All right, so we can locate causes in the mind as well. Now the Buddha focused on the mind in terms of those levels of intervention. And he offered profound, true, and in my view, wholly effective methods for radically and permanently transforming the mind so that no longer could greed, hatred, heartache, or delusion invade the mind and remain. By all accounts, by practicing his teachings, hundreds of people in his lifetime were fully awakened, reached the fourth stage of enlightenment. Men and women, uh, Brahmins and untouchables, uh, householders and monastics alike, attained full awakening, hundreds of people in his lifetime. And many, many more went very far along the path of awakening and went very far toward reducing uh, suffering and harmfulness in their own lives and around them and in promoting happiness and benefit for themselves and others. And in the nearly 2,500 years since his death, Buddhism has spread around the world, offering wider and wider ripples of benefit, um, enlightening some, and feeding, inspiring, soothing, healing, and nourishing many, many more. As Buddhism has spread around the world, principally into Southeast Asia, Tibet, China, Japan, and now the West, um, there have been lots of modifications, some innovations, some pruning, some enhancements. And they've added a lot of value, I think, along the way. But as enriching and as valuable as those enhancements have been, they have not altered the fundamental teachings of Gautama the Buddha and the fundamental sufficiency of those core teachings. So it's in that context of respect for the Buddha's original teachings and the non-necessity of any additions to them, I'd like to offer some additions uh, that have to do in some ways as uh, what can happen when you examine the causes of suffering and deep happiness as they manifest in the brain. So, in other words, how might the... Um, your own dukkha, suffering, your own sense of strain or contraction, unease, anxiety, irritation, uh, kind of low-grade wobbly grinding, which is the meaning and the deep origins of the word for dukkha in Pali. It's the meeting of uh, a uh, wheel, uh, this hub, and an axle that's duh, not good. It's kind of a wobbly grinding. So what are the causes of dukkha? What are the causes of everyday discomfort and suffering? subtle, ranging to anguished, as well as what are the causes of mindfulness, equanimity, compassion, rapture, concentration, uh, virtue, even nirvana itself, 
as they manifest in your own brain. Or to kind of be more specific here, how could it help you to understand more of the causes of suffering and its end as they move through your own brain? And how might it help you to become more skillful at directly intervening in the brain itself, targeting the neural substrates of wholesome states of mind, and also targeting the neural substrates of unwholesome factors in the mind. How could that help you? That's what I hope to explore with you tonight. I'll hold forth a bit longer and then slow down for some question or discussion. And and in particular, I want to make sure I reserve time for talking about some practical takeaways for me uh, that have come from my own exploration of what you might call neurodharma. Okay. So, um, the Buddha and other yogis of his time taught about what was called Nama Rupa. Nama being the domain of consciousness, mind. And Rupa being the domain of materiality, which really includes energy, right? E equals MC squared. So we have here consciousness and materiality co-arising together. That's a fundamental notion uh, of the Buddha. And in a sense, it's dualistic. Nama is distinct from Rupa, okay? Mind is distinct from matter. Information is distinct from the material substrates that represent it. But there are two aspects of one system, as we'll see. At a deeper level, they're joined together. So, just as the Buddha talked about nama and rupa, right? Spirit and form, mind and matter. Just so, mental and neural activity, informational and neurochemical electrical flows, proceed together inside your own nervous system and stream of consciousness. As far as we know, apart from the possible influence of any hypothetical transcendental factors, every mental event co-arises with an underlying neural event. For example, stress, upset, correlates with underlying flows of cortisol, adrenaline, norepinephrine, and other stress hormones and neurotransmitters. The experience of alarm, being startled or being triggered, correlates with activation in different parts of the brain, notably the amygdala. Um, when I offered those suggestions at the beginning there, mindfulness, steadying the mind, correlates with, for example, a greater sense of safety. So we can relax vigilance and be less jittery and unsettled in our consciousness. And come down to a more centered, clear presence and a stability of presence moment to moment. In some ways, meditation is staying present while doing nothing, you know, in a nutshell. How do we actually do that? Uh, another factor of concentration is positive emotion because in terms of the neurotransmitter dopamine that's associated with reward, high steady levels of dopamine Create a kind of, keep the gate closed in a way to the neural substrates of working memory so you can really concentrate on your object of attention, such as the sensations of breathing. 
or let's say a kind of spacious awareness. That associates with activation of networks on the sides of your brain. While on the other hand, you know, the voice in the back of the head is kind of ruminating away. For example, there you are in spacious awareness, breath, 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 shopping list, whole foods, lines, people, getting a discount card, breath, breath. That lost in thought is associated with midline activation, networks in the middle of the brain. Or consciousness or awareness itself is associated with very tight feedback loops between the cortex, especially the frontal portions of the cortex, and the thalamus, which is like the big switchboard down in the center of the brain. If you use chemicals to cut those highways of information going back and forth between the thalamus and the cortex, you can anesthetize someone to, you know, take out their wisdom teeth or, you know, set a broken bone, all right? Those are just some of the many examples of the ways in which um, materiality, matter, rupa, co-arises with nama. Now, all we know is nama. All we know is conscious experience. Isn't that interesting? That's all we know, unless we're in some incredible and extraordinary and who knows, you know, non-ordinary state of consciousness. All we know is what's in the field of conscious awareness. If you think about it, we are radically cut off from any direct knowing of reality. Sight, sound, sensation of the chair, what you're thinking right now, what you're mulling over in the back of your mind, the whole world of conscious experience, my whole world of conscious experience, seeing you, the brightness of the lights, hearing the sound of the fan, wondering you know, if this is of any use to you, all the rest of that, you know, that is constructed by the nervous system, as best we know, apart from some hypothetical transcendental X factor. And it's constructed as a partial representation of reality. In a sense, it's as if we bob up and down in an ocean of mercury and we're forever unaware of what's beneath the surface. And as far as we've known, there's nothing beneath the surface because we cannot contact it directly. All right? All we know is what we see above the surface of the mercury in the realm of conscious awareness, phenomenology, subjective experience. But as we now know increasingly well, we have a, an invisible dancing partner that's moving with us continually, that correlates with and maps to and in effect creates every conscious experience above the surface of the mercury. Now the Buddha and his contemporaries could not know what was going on beneath the waterline. In terms of the Buddhist notion of the aggregates, which basically encompasses matter in terms of the first aggregate of form, as well as the barest apprehension of, of matter. And then the rest are all mental. Okay? Second aggregate being uh, the feeling tone of experience, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Third aggregate, perception, memory, labeling, what is it? Okay? Fourth aggregate, all the various thoughts and emotions, desires, psychodynamics, enneagram points, 
you know, systems and so forth, moving through awareness, and then consciousness itself. Consciousness itself co-arising with all the rest. Okay? The, in the Buddhist view, that's all there is. You can sort every bit uh, into those five aggregates and notice that four and a half of them have to do with subjective experience. After the barest bit of form, the rest of it is what's in our experience. That was the Buddha's focus. But millennia later, 2,000 plus years later, we're getting clearer and clearer about how the mental events that we care about, are we happy or sad? Are we angry or peaceful? Are we clear or clouded? Have to do with underlying neural processes. They are the result of underlying neural processes. In effect, there are three facts here. One fact is that as the brain changes, the mind changes. Okay, as there are ebbs and flows of neurotransmitters, as different parts of the brain activate or deactivate, the mind changes as well. The second correlate, though, the second fact, is that it goes the other way. As the mind changes, the brain changes. For example, if you think of, if you're a college student, madly in love, in an MRI, and you've just been shown a photograph of your sweetheart, bingo! The caudate nucleus, a part of the brain that's involved with reward, lights up. Also lights up if you take cocaine or win the lottery. I'm not equating them, but it activates. It also lights up in studies of nuns who've been asked to recall a very profound spiritual experience. They too have that activation in the caudate nucleus as a sense of reward. Okay? The mind has changed there. Uh, let's say a person feels envious. Let's say you're another college student, these poor guinea pigs college students in Japan, who's been told that someone in your technical university is spectacularly more talented than you are. How do you feel? Envy. What goes on in your brain as that thought and feeling of envy arises? Activation of the pain networks in the brain. Because social pain and physical pain networks overlap each other extensively. The mind has changed. So does the brain. Or, for example, what if you have a long-term mindfulness practice, a meditative practice? How many of you meditate at least one minute a month? <laughs> no more questions. That's Okay, good. All right. If you have a long time, a long-term meditative practice, you know, a sloppy real-world one, 20 minutes a day, 45 minutes tomorrow, maybe a minute the day after, and then back on the saddle again. Um, the flows of uh, thought through your brain, in other words, the, the um, attempt to routinely pay attention and concentrate, or the tuning into oneself, actually changes neural structure. The mind is changing the brain, not just temporarily, but in lasting ways. Building up neural tissue, literally building new connections among synapses and neurons, and synapses being the junction between neurons, more blood flow in parts of the brain in the front of the brain that help control attention, because meditation is preeminently a training of attention, and also parts of the brain in the insula, which is kind of on the inside of the temporal lobes, get measurably thicker as well, because that's a part of the brain that's involved in tuning into oneself, as well as tuning into other people. So there we have an example of the mind changing the brain, including in lasting ways. So that's the second fact. As the mind changes, so does the brain, which then takes you to the third fact. It's a takeaway point. You can use the mind to change the brain, to change the mind for the better. That's a wonderful thing. It's because, in the famous saying from the Canadian psychologist Donald Hebb, neurons that fire together wire together. 
if you stimulate the neural substrates, the neural networks of positive states of mind, you gradually strengthen them. And if you gradually, as the Buddha used the language of nutriments, if you gradually withdraw the nutriments, if you stop fertilizing and watering the weeds in the garden, they gradually get crowded out by flowers. Right? Those neural networks, those connections start withering away in a process sometimes called neural Darwinism, you know, survival of the busiest. Right? Use it or lose it. Right? So for me, the point about this is both hopeful, like, wow, you can actually change your brain. You know, your own practice bears fruit. My practice bears fruit in the brain. And it takes us to responsibility. You know, on the day we were conceived, uh, no video will be shown tonight. Uh, on the day we were conceived, you know, we were handed the build-out instructions for our own brain. The most complex physical object known to science. The fruit of three plus, three and a half or so billion years of evolution. 600 million years of evolution of the nervous system itself. And we were handed that. What will we do? You know, if it's increasingly clear that we truly have power, we truly are a cause in many ways. We can intervene in the causes that proceed inside that organ that puts us on the tack. It makes us, you know, the responsible party. It reminds me of the very, very last thing the Buddha said on his own deathbed. You know, it's variously translated as essentially, um, be a light unto yourself. You know, don't, um, don't look, ultimately look to yourself. Ultimately, it's up to you, you know, to do this practice. And so that's, that's another way of talking about responsibility. Now, being able to, based increasingly on, you know, what's being found out in, in neuroscience, which is a baby science, really, compared to chemistry or astronomy, certainly, um, being able to increasingly intervene with skillfulness inside the brain is to me a really nice enhancement to Buddhism. It's motivating to realize that what you're doing can make a difference. It also helps you individualize your practice for your own brain because the most fundamental form of true diversity is neurological diversity. There are many different types of brains. And being able to intervene quite skillfully and in a quite a targeted way inside your own brain and to have a deeper insight into the mechanicalness, frankly, and in the Buddhist terminology, the emptiness, in other words, the interdependent arising of mental events, you know, that can help really turbocharge householder practice. I think in some ways there's a kind of movement as Buddhism is coming to the West of a fifth yana, of yanas or vehicles of Buddhism is emerging now. The first one is Theravadan Buddhism, the original teachings of the Buddha. Then um, you could say we have Tibetan and Zen, and then Pure Land as well, four primary vehicles of Buddhism. And I think a fifth one is arguably emerging in the West as we learn more and more about the causes and conditions uh, of suffering and its end that proceed in our own nervous system. And as Buddhism is moved into the West in an historically unprecedented way, it's being driven by householders. Householders have a serious interest in going far along the path of awakening, maybe even all the way to the end. We don't have the benefits of monastic practice. We don't have that, I used, used to love geology as a kid, you know those tumblers that kind of grind these rough stones and a 
couple weeks later, they come out beautiful and polished. That's the monastery. You know, that's the nunnery, 24-7 grinding and polishing. We don't have that opportunity usually as householders. If we can grab 45 minutes a day for meditation, you know, 98% uh, of the days in the year, that's very unusual even for people who are quite serious about practice. Uh, maybe a week or two here and there to retreat over the course of the year. It's tough to do a lot more than that. So there's a place for looking for methods that have a real impact and, you know, frankly, pay off quickly. Obviously, there are pitfalls around that. We get very caught up in the Western way. Fast food, one-minute meditator, you know, <laughs> the McDonald's of enlightenment, you know, Carl's here, I want it my way, whatever. You know, I have to watch out for that. But that said, knowing more and more what you can do inside your own brain gives you more and more influence there. So I'd like to offer a few t key takeaways for me as I've proceeded in my own path uh, in terms of you could say applied neurodharma. That's a phrase, right? Oh, there will be no book titled that, but anyway. So first one, power of mindfulness. Boy, neurons that fire together wire together, but they do so particularly for what's in the field of conscious attention. Focused attention is like a combination spotlight and vacuum cleaner. It illuminates what it rests upon and then sucks it into the brain. But getting, con so getting control of that spotlight is critically important. But how many people have really good control of that spotlight, right? Breath, 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 shopping list, right? Or here we are in a culture that's kind of an ADD culture with lots and lots of stimulation bombarding us and different things coming at us at all time. We get used to a very intense incoming baud rate of stimulation. You know, we get stim hungry if it drops below a certain level. Uh, our kids who have pretty good concentration can't watch movies from the 80s because they're too slow. Even if it's a Sam Peckinpah action thriller, it's like, it's too slow. I mean, they're habituated to a cut about every three to four seconds, okay? So how do we get control of that, you know, uh, spotlight? That's where I think uh, it's helpful to appreciate the machinery of attention. Um, if you want, just a detail, I have a website. Uh, you can get there easily, buddhistbrain.com. You can remember that. Also, rickhanson.net. But the point there is I have... Lots of stuff freely offered, tons of stuff, including from workshops I've done on neural factors of mindfulness, as well as of the five factors of the jhanas, the five jhana factors of deep absorption. What are different ways you can actually stimulate these in your own mind? I offered six of them in the beginning here. You know, set an intention, particularly bottom up in a very felt way. Um, two, really relax. It's very hard to steady the mind when there's a lot of activation of the sympathetic nervous system that's involved in stress response, fight or flight activation. It's calmed down by the relaxing, rest and digest um, parasympathetic nervous system. And one of the key ways to activate the parasympathetic nervous system is through exhaling, because it handles exhaling, while the sympathetic stress response, fight or flight system handles inhaling. Another uh, factor of mindfulness uh, is to feel cared about, because then you can settle. We're deeply social animals, as I said. Exile was a death sentence in the Serengeti. We have a deep need to have a basic sense of belonging, inclusion, mattering. Um, yes, there's often a fair amount of heartache and sorrow associated with that, but if we can find our way home again to that felt sense of being cared about, it's a real aid to steadying the mind, because it helps us settle and come present to ourselves. You know, it's interesting, sometimes we say to people, oh, just be mindful, but that's like opening a trap door to hell. 
you know? And if you're not really ready for it, if you're just being with what's there, past the point that's useful, because neurons that fire together wire together, that's like doing one more lap in hell, digging a track deeper and deeper every time you go around it. So I think it's important to be able to resource ourselves so we really truly can stay present moment after moment while doing nothing. Because as you know, when you turn over the rocks in the mind by doing nothing, strange things crawl out from under sometimes. You know? So the felt sense of being cared about is a real ally uh, there. As they say in AA, the mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Never go in alone. So. A fourth uh, factor of mindfulness is helping yourself feel as safe as you can. You know, there's no perfect safety in a world that has old age, disease, and death uh, that's full of impermanence. Um, on the other hand, we, most people can afford to feel safer because as I'll talk a bit later, we're really prone to anxiety uh, as, as biological creatures. And um, so if you can help yourself feel safer, if, for example, as the Buddha did on the night of his own awakening, he had the tree at his back, so the threats were forced to come toward him from the front. If you can help yourself feel safer, it's a lot easier to be steadily attentive then. You don't have to invest resources in being vigilant out there. You can bring the sentinels home to help with your mindfulness. By the way, detail, it's getting a little nippy in here for me. How about for you? I don't know, Sean or an assistant, maybe they could turn off the fans or something. I don't know. It'll work out. Thanks, Sean. Um, fifth, fifth factor was positive emotion. Uh, I mentioned in passing that positive emotion helps you um, stabilize what you're paying attention to. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, okay, it's still somewhere. Okay, don't overdo it. We're going to find some collective middle path, right? Okay, leaving a lot of windows open. How about that? Well, anyway. No. All right. Well, we'll, we'll work it out. See, Duca, there's always some kind of wobbly grinding, really. So, what was I going to, oh, positive emotion, you know? It's interesting, isn't it, that two of the five factors of deep contemplative absorption, non-ordinary awareness, are bliss and joy. Why in the world would the Buddha recommend, a Buddha completely prepared to be a deep renunciate and in his own history an intensely ascetic yogi, why would he recommend rapture or bliss and joy as factors of concentration? Well, I think the reason neurologically is that high steady levels of um, positive emotion keep the gate closed. It's a kind of physical, chemical gate closed to the underlying neural substrates of working memory, which is a major basis of what we hold in awareness. That's why happiness is skillful means. So opening to, not out of grasping or clinging or struggle, but gently opening to, out of kindness to yourself, opening to positive emotion really promotes steadiness of mind. And then last, uh, taking in the good, really um, opening to and sensing and intending that the fruits of your practice, the benefits of your practice, are actually sinking into you. And thereby defeating, as I'll talk about a bit later, the negativity bias of the brain, which makes it like Velcro for negative experiences, unfortunately, but Teflon for positive ones. <laughs> so those are six things a person can do. There are other things I've talked about in other uh, day-longs here. Um, you can look at the slide sets from those workshops uh, under the title, Steadying the Mind. 
Uh, and you can see other suggestions there. But th that's an example of the importance of mindfulness as the main tool we use, you know, to um, draw in wholesome uh, qualities and to see more and more insightfully into the factors that lead to suffering. Another um, takeaway for me has been to really appreciate the importance of evolution and to embed this deep teaching about causes and their results in the long journey of humankind, you know, three and a half billion years of life on this planet. Uh, some of the key themes of that reflection for me have had to do with appreciating the way in which the brain evolved in three basic stages. First stage was to avoid harm. You know, rule one in evolution, eat lunch today, don't be lunch today. Right? Avoid sticks. Two, and that really corresponds to the brain stem, sort of more the reptilian mosquito level of the brain. Going, you know, you, we share about 20% of our DNA with bananas. Yeah. Kind of puts things in perspective, doesn't it? But anyway. Going well level up, we have these subcortical structures, you know, limbic system, that's very involved in approaching reward, going to get those carrots, revving up in more supple, uh, nuanced ways. And then the third level of the brain focused on attaching to us. That was the development really with mammals and birds and then really uh, highly social animals like uh, uh, primates and then in particular human beings. We have a focus on attaching to us. Okay, so we have these three systems, avoiding, approaching, and attaching. The default mode of the brain, when a person is not disturbed by fear or pain or threat or loss or some kind of chemical disturbance, is to default to a very good place. What are people like? What do you like? What am I like? You know, when we're not upset about something or rattled. Right? In terms of the avoiding system, it defaults to a state of calm characterized by lots of activation of the parasympathetic nervous system, which was the first to develop. It developed, it evolved before the sympathetic nervous system did. That's our most ancient home base, calm. In terms of the approaching system, the brain defaults to a state of basic contentment, basic ease. You know, people describe that when they're not rattled or disturbed, like they feel basically a kind of um, basic simple contentment, basic well-being generally speaking. And then third, in terms of the attaching system, people default to a state of caring. Isn't it remarkable how caring people are with total strangers, how cooperative, how easeful. We don't really, uh, we, it, it's so much the wallpaper, we tend to not notice it, but it really is our true nature. That is where we come home to. And I'll talk more about how to really abide increasingly in the fundamental responsive mode of the brain, which is the undoing in the moment of greed, hatred, and heartache, or to put it more exactly, hatred in the you know, avoiding system, greed in the attaching system, and heartache in the approaching system. The undoing of that is calm, contentment, and caring. And as I'll talk about in the very end here tonight, um, by doing that, by abiding as much as we can in our natural home base, and then perfecting it and developing it further, perhaps even to a sublime extent in terms of full awakening, um, every time we, we, every minute we clock in the responsive mode of the brain, 
we stimulate and therefore strengthen its neural substrates. We can take the fruit as the path, in other words, which I'll talk about at the end tonight. That said, there's also a lot of bad news about the brain and evolution because we also evolved hair trigger mechanisms to drive us from this home base. At the cough of a lion three million years ago, or today a frown across a dinner table, or you know, Fox News being turned on in your dentist's office. <laughs> All right? yeah. and so that's where dukkha comes in, suffering, discontent, wobbly grinding. So it helps to, for me at least, it's helped to appreciate the way in which dukkha is inherent in biological existence. And for a long time, you'd read monastics who would use that language. They would talk about the dukkha that's inherent, the suffering that's inherent. And I'd go, really? Are you sure? I'm a California guy. In the Enneagram, I'm a seven. You know, I like having fun. Like, really? Dukkha? Total? Inherent? Well, um, my own take, based on what I'm about to say, is that, yeah, it's pretty built in. So to survive, what do organisms have to do? What do we all have to do to survive? We have to separate from the world. We have to stabilize dynamic systems in good places. And we have to get those carrots and avoid those sticks. That's what we have to do. That's our mission, right? But alas, it's mission impossible. Because everything's connected to everything else. We can't be radically separated. Two, we can't stabilize equilibria or dynamic systems perfectly well because everything keeps changing, right? It all keeps wobbly. And then third, who among us, you know, can hold on to carrots forever or utterly avoid, you know, pain, including um, old age, disease, and death? The problem is when these three missions, you know, separate from the world, stabilize systems, and get those carrots, avoid those sticks, whenever, any, whenever those systems are, are thwarted in any way, it sends off alarm signals. Most of these alarm signals are beneath conscious awareness, but they create a background of unease of discontent, of unbalancedness. And many of them bubble up into awareness, giving us a sense of physical pain or emotional pain or unease. A lesson for me about this is to appreciate the fact that these signals of alarm, in most cases, are just noise. They're not signals at all, right? They're just, it's just a mild discontent that doesn't mean anything in particular. The takeaway is to not be alarmed about being alarmed. To be okay with the dukkha that's there, what the Buddha called the first start of existence. It is dukkha. It is, it is subtly unpleasant, subtly contracted, subtly dissatisfying, subtly uneasy, subtly painful, subtly uncomfortable. I mean, how just in an ordinary basic relationship, how often do we feel there's perfect balance, perfect attunement, everything is absolutely perfectly all right? It's a rare moment, and when we get it, we want it so much that we create dukkha right there, you know? It just goes on and on, So what the Buddha recommended powerfully was to be mindful of that dukkha and not react to it. It's a kind of reaction to the inherent wobbliness of life, but we don't have to react to it with second and third and fourth darts that we throw ourselves. Another takeaway for me from neurodharma is to appreciate the negativity bias of the brain. You know, while in evolution it's important to get carrots, it's much more important to avoid sticks. Because if you fail to get a carrot today, 
you'll probably have a chance at one tomorrow. But if you fail to avoid a stick today, whap, no more carrots forever. All right? So the brain has a negativity bias that manifests in many, many kinds of ways. For example, it's very easy to train people in helplessness and or dogs and very, very hard to teach them that they actually can do something about their fate, that they're a cue ball rather than an eight ball. You know, in the studies on dogs on learned helplessness, you could train a dog in helplessness in half a dozen trials, okay, where it has mild but un inescapable um, electrical shock that it has no control over. But then it would take, it takes usually dozens and dozens, sometimes well over a hundred trials to teach that dog, sometimes to the point of absurdity, of literally walking into the pen and dragging it across a little line painted on the metal floor of the pen to safety again and again and again to teach the dog that all it has to do is to step, is to get up when the bell starts ringing because it has a 10 minute, 10 second window there to get to safety, right? It takes many, many dozens, which has huge implications for how vulnerable we are for um, helplessness and how important it is to focus on where we do have efficacy, which is frankly only and often only in the mind itself. We can't change our conditions out there or even in our bodies, but we can work with the conditions inside our own mind. Another example of the negativity bias is the finding in couples work that typically uh, couples that have a long-term chance um, have at least a five to one ratio of positive to negative interactions. In effect, one negative interaction equals about five positive ones. You can think about it in regular life. You have a relationship with someone, 20 things happen in a day, right? 10 are mildly uh, pleasant, uh, nine are neutral, and one's mildly unpleasant. What's the one you think about as you drift off to sleep? As you form your rebuttal and think about your case and changing your Facebook status or something about that, you know? So, um, right? Negativity bias. Uh, the brain, you know, any kind of negative event happens. The brain's continually scanning for the negative. It's, you know, and any, any negative thing happens, bam, that's the one it fastens on, zeroes in on that, ignores the rest, fast tracks that information into long-term storage, and there it sits to be pulled up in anything remotely similar. But positive events only have normal memory systems, right? And they just kind of sit there unless it's a million-dollar moment, and that's pleasant, right? And then a few seconds later, there's something else that's pleasant. That's nice. But if we don't hold uh, normal information in memory, short-term memory buffers for 10, 20, 30 seconds in a row, it doesn't transfer to long-term storage. That's why most pleasant experiences, most positive experiences, flow right through the brain, like water through a sieve. But negative experiences, caught every time. Velcro for the negative, Teflon for the positive, in other words. So appreciating that really takes one to practices of deliberately looking for the positive, for what the Buddha said, looking for those things that gladden the heart, looking for those things that we feel grateful for including a recognition of our own good qualities. He recommended, obviously there are pitfalls of getting egoic about it, but he recommended to, um, finding gladness in a recognition of your own good qualities and your own good efforts. And it also takes us to the point of the importance of staying with the positive 10, 20, 30 seconds in a row to defeat this artifact in the brain, in the neurology of implicit memory and transforming the brain so it becomes increasingly Velcro for positive experiences and, Vel and Teflon for negative ones, okay? It means, in addition to having wise mindfulness, 
that helps us see the world clearly, see the negative in the world. This is not rose-colored glasses or the power of positive thinking, but it's to see the whole mosaic of the world. Not just the negatives we tend to fasten on, but so many, usually small, positive things. It's, it's to practice right mindfulness, one of the eight elements of the Noble Eightfold Path, and it's to also practice um, right effort, which means releasing what's harmful and negative and not helpful, and cultivating the flowers in the garden of the mind and therefore the brain of what's positive, in part through really taking in the good. Another takeaway for me is a subset of the negativity bias is to appreciate what scared little monkeys we are. You know, uh, organisms, animals, cavemen, cavewomen, long back in the day, they were all Zen and really present and kind of listening to Jack talk. Just look at the light on the water. It's so far out. Yeah, it's great. (laughs) They got eaten. Why did they get eaten? They weren't looking around like a bird on the ground these days for the threats overhead. You know, the ancestors that passed on their genes were nervous and irritable. And we're their great-grandchildren at the top of the food chain, armed with nuclear weapons today, all right? So we're very sensitive to threat. You know, there are two basic mistakes you can make in evolution or in life today. You can think there is a tiger there, right? Something bad's going to happen when actually the coast is clear. Or you can think everything's fine, la-di-da, but there's a tiger about to get you. What's the cost of the first mistake? Anxiety, right? Needless anxiety. What's the cost of the second mistake? All right, toast. Mother Nature wants us to make the first mistake a thousand times over to avoid making the second mistake even once. All right, so we have what I call paper tiger paranoia. We tend to see the whole world as threat level orange. So what are some of the takeaways about that? Since the world most of the time is threat level chartreuse, even in airports, what are the odds of a bad event on your flight on this day? It's chartreuse. It's like a swimming pool of green with a drop of yellow, you know? That's the true threat level in most of our lives. Yes, it's important to see the real tigers, but we have a generic hardwired bias in the brain that focuses on threats, which then gets exacerbated by temperament. Some people are more anxious than others, as well as exacerbated by modern culture and the age-old story in which various political groups use fear, trumping up fear, to gain or, or hold on to political power. So there... Takeaways include things like insight, recognizing needless anxiety. Also, noticing you're all right right now. Mother Nature did not want our ancestors to notice they were all right right now. Mother Nature is brilliant at producing gene copies and lousy at quality of life. All right? So there's this background thing in psychology is called signal anxiety. It's this background murmur of anxiety. It keeps us on our edge, you know? All right? But most of the time, we're actually all right right now. Not perfect. Sometimes you're not all right right now. But most of the time, most people are, are actually all right right now. And it's to recognize that in a felt way. And that, too, is where practices of relaxation and tranquility come in and are so helpful. Um, another takeaway there is not being a threat to others. You know, the Buddha talked about give no person cause to fear you. You know, approaching others with an open hand, open heart, and an open mind. And I've gotten a lot more thoughtful both about not letting myself get manipulated or triggered by paper tigers or stuffed tigers or chain tigers or small and manageable tigers. 
okay? And second, I've given a lot more thought to not constituting a tiger for others. You know, that doesn't mean to me walking on eggshells or being a doormat. Um, people who know me would say I'm fairly assertive, quite prepared to be assertive if need be. But there are many ways to integrate kindness and assertiveness and to speak truth to power, speak from our heart with gravity and dignity, which is, has much more potency to it, without giving others cause to fear us. Give them cause to expect that they won't get dessert if they don't do their homework, maybe. You know, or cause to expect that um, you're going to put them out of your company if they don't show up on time, or maybe put them out of your bed without necessarily putting them out of your heart. So. And then moving to kind of an end here, it's also helped me really appreciate the power of the social brain. You know, we really did evolve. Um, the brain tripled in volume since our ancestors first began manufacturing stone tools about two and a half million years ago. The majority of that build-out and volume of the brain is dedicated to social functions like language, empathy, bonding, attachment, cooperative planning, um, gossip, interpersonal politics, uh, and so on. Uh, sometimes it seems allocated to uses like on the TV show Survivor. I don't know so much about that. But those faculties are also at the basis of, of love and caring and kindness. Um, it's deeply important to us to feel cared about. It's natural. It's normal to want love. It's normal to want a mate. It's normal to want family. It's normal to want to be included. It's normal to want, in psychology language, you know, narcissistic supplies. That's perfectly legitimate. It's as normal as wanting to take uh, a glass of water, drink a glass of water if you're thirsty, or take a breath, uh, deeper breath if you're short of air. That's completely normal. The Buddha talked about two kinds of desire. Tanha, which is thirst or craving, that leads to suffering, boom. Or chanta, the desires that are wholesome. We need to have both, of course, wholesome aims as well as wholesome methods of pursuing our desires. There's a lot of art there, isn't there, in being householders in the world today. But to claim the importance of feeling cared about and to extend um, caring as well, loved and loving, to the whole world, including to one of those beings in the whole world that wears your name tag. That is deeply important. And that's deeply natural to do. And there's nothing um, off or um, un-Buddhist about it. So to conclude, and then maybe I'll take a comment or so or question and then we'll wrap up. Um, At the end of all this, to me, we come back to the beginning. Uh, of taking the fruit as the path, which is a Tibetan saying. In other words, as you... I've asked myself, what's going on in the brain of a Buddha? Because they still have a brain, right? You can't not have a brain. You know, What's going on in the brain of a Buddha? Or what's going on in the brain of, of, a, of a major teacher or, or ourselves in a really great state of mind? What's going on there? And how can we um, cultivate the causes and conditions of that way of being? And you can't get rid of the avoiding, approaching, and attaching systems in the brain. You can't get rid of the brainstem, the limbic system, and the cortex. But what you can do is um, gradually nudge the mode of activation of those systems in one direction or another. You can nudge the mode of those systems toward the responsive mode of calm, contentment, and caring. And you can nudge the networks in your brain 
away from the reactive mode of activation, characterized by hatred in terms of the avoiding system, greed in terms of the attaching, approaching system rather, and heartache in terms of the attaching system. We can do that. So every minute, every second, you're in a state of relative calm, relative contentment, relative ease, and relative caring, feeling loved and being loving. Every time you do that, you're taking the fruit as the path. You're taking the the aim, the end, as the method. You're returning home to the natural state that sometimes is obscured by various reactivations, but is the true home for the heart. And that is a wonderful thing. And the related great thing is to realize you can do it yourself, minute by minute, and thereby, you know, as the Buddha taught, be a light unto yourself. So maybe just in the mood of it, if you'll indulge me here, I'll formally end in a moment. I'll stick around kind of as long as you want um, afterward to talk, if if you'd like, um, individually. And I'd like to make just a couple announcements. And then how about we sit for a couple of minutes and then just kind of come home to that place of calm, contentment, and caring uh, even further. Uh, Announcements when you uh, leave here, please be sure to turn right at Sir Francis Drake, not left. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.